glad you're all uh, happy to see each other. It's good to be back with you. I appreciate the guys filling in for me while I was gone as well. Uh, Jan reminded me to remind you, uh, ladies, that the, uh, the, the ladies' fellowship uh, this Thursday is at Marlene Bystrom's home. Okay, so if you show up at the church and nobody's here, it's not like uh, there's been a partial rapture or anything. Uh, they're over at Marlene's house, so that's uh, Thursday. We are in Matthew chapter 28 this morning. We are coming down the stretch. Uh, you know, we've been in Matthew for two years, roughly a little over two years. So I got this message and, and one next Sunday, uh, if the Lord tarries, and then we'll be, we'll be done. But we're in Matthew 28, 11 through 15, the lie that proves the resurrection. You say, what in the world is that title about? Well, I hope to explain it to you, right? Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Pray that you would minister to our hearts as we once again uh, study in the book of Matthew. Thank you for your living word, uh, the eternal word. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly. Uh, and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, note on the overhead, the outline of the book. Uh, the theme is Christ the King. And we have come down to the final section here. Chapter 28, the resurrection of the King. Well, early on Resurrection Sunday, the tomb of Christ was discovered to be empty. This was the greatest of all news for the followers of Christ, but the very worst of news for the enemies of Christ. Now, represented among the devoted women followers of Christ, we find that they were last at the cross. They were first at the tomb on Resurrection Sunday. And coming to the tomb early in the morning, they found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance of the tomb. And an angel then announced to them that Jesus is not here, for he is risen, as he said. And then he instructed them to go and tell the disciples that he would meet them in Galilee. <clears throat> and as they ran to tell the disciples, Jesus personally then appeared to them, and they worshipped him. He then also instructed them to go and tell the brethren to go to Galilee where they would see him. And that's where we pick up the narrative today uh, here in Matthew 28 and verse 11. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all things that had happened. As I have said in the past, uh, there was a lot happening on this morning in close succession. Uh, when the angel descended... From heaven, with a, there was a great earthquake that happened, and he rolled back the stone. Then the first ones to know about the supernatural truth of the resurrection was really the Roman guards. And they were terrified out of their minds. We read here in Matthew 28, verse 4, And the guards shook for fear of him, <clears throat> this, this angel. And they became like dead men. Now, evidently, these guards, upon reviving from their state of trauma, immediately left the scene, and the women shortly thereafter came upon the scene of the tomb. Well, as the women were then leaving the site of the tomb, representatives of the guard evidently were ahead of them, uh, and entering into the city, they reported to the chief priests all things that had happened. They reported to the chief priests probably because they had been assigned a role under the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, of which the chief priests had a, had a major leading role. 
And uh, they did so because they had been instructed by Pilate uh, to do according to what the request of the Sanhedrin had been, which was to make the tomb as secure as possible. In fact, uh, just by way of review, back here in chapter 27, Pilate said to them, you have a guard, it's under your charge, Uh, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. So as granted by Pilate, these soldiers were serving out the requests of the chief priests and these religious leaders who really comprised uh, the Supreme Court in Israel. Therefore, they immediately reported back to them. And they probably knew this would be a much better way to go than to report directly back to Pilate. Because you see, to fail in your duty as a Roman guard called for the death penalty. Uh, You simply can't do that. Uh, If you were guarding a prisoner and the prisoner escaped, you would die. That was the general rule uh, under Rome. You know, you say, well, how do you lose a a dead person? Well, it doesn't happen every day. Uh, When Peter was supernaturally released from jail by an angel, that did not go well for the guards. We read in Acts chapter 12, verse 19, but when Herod had searched for him, that's for Peter, angel lets him out of prison, uh, Herod searched for him and not found him. He examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. You lose your prisoner, you die. And he went down to Judea, uh, to Caesarea, from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. When a great earthquake shook the jail at Philippi to where the doors were all sprung loose, the Philippian jailer was ready to commit suicide because if the prisoners had escaped, it would mean certain death for him anyway. Thankfully, none of them escaped, and Paul and Silas shared the gospel with this Philippian jailer, and he got saved. The point is, for a Roman guard to lose their charge, whatever, whoever they were in charge of, uh, whoever they were guarding, could very well result in the death penalty. So at all costs, a Roman guard would never allow a prisoner to escape, or in this case, a dead body to escape. Now, it's almost humorous as they had the full power of the Roman government arrayed just to make sure this dead body did not get out of the tomb. That was the whole point. And the reason they even were there is because they knew full well that he had predicted it would happen. And then it happened. As the angel said, just as he said. He told you this was going to happen. The Roman guard undoubtedly knew that these religious leaders had influence with Pilate. And therefore, it made sense to go directly uh, to them about the situation. And as they did so, they reported, notice it says, all things that had happened, all things that had happened. Those things included what's recorded here in verses 2 through 4. And behold, there was a great earthquake For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, his clothes as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. These guards witnessed firsthand the great earthquake, a glorious heavenly figure rolling the stone away, and his lightning-like countenance traumatizing them to the point of passing out. This was their experience. 
and clearly implied is that they knew the tomb was empty, which in context is the great issue that they are presenting now to the chief priests. I mean, if all this happened and the body was still there, okay, well, at least we didn't lose the body. They knew the body was gone. This was their firsthand testimony. Now, it seems very possible uh, that the chief priests were informed about the empty tomb even before the disciples knew about it. Thus, their worst fears were realized. They had done all they could humanly do to prevent this very thing from happening, and then it happened anyway. They say it's hard to keep a good man down, but I want to emphasize it's impossible to keep the God-man down. It's really hard taking on Jesus. You want to lose? You want to be a loser? Just take on Jesus. You'll lose. Jesus had made his resurrection the ultimate issue. He was challenged by the religious leaders. He said, okay, you want a definitive sign? I'll give it to you. And here it is, as we remember back in Matthew 12. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Now, why did he say that? I mean, is it, why was it so sinful to seek another sign? Well, because he had already given so many, 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 many signs. It's wicked to ask for more when you've been given more than enough evidence. And so he said, no sign will be given to it except, except I'm going to make one exception. Except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And what was that? For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The clear implication is that just as Jonah was delivered on the third day, so the Son of Man would be delivered from the heart of the earth, that is from the grave, on the third day. And clearly, these religious leaders understood Christ's prediction that he would be raised to life on the third day. Remember what they said when they came before Pilate? On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, this would have been Saturday, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember, we remember. Boy, they, were nip they could remember these little details, like the disciples all forgot it, but they remembered it. Say, we remember that while he was still alive, how that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. Boy, they got that right. Here it was, the third day. And here the guard was telling them all that had happened. They had to be in shock. And yet in their full rebellion, they would not submit to the truth of it. Now this is an example of people who know full well the truth and yet refuse to believe it. You see, to truly believe in the Bible sense of saving faith is to personally accept and yield to the truth of God's Word. It's not enough just to intellectually know the truth. The Bible says it's with the heart that we believe. You see, even the demons intellectually know the truth. Even the demons believe intellectually, as James says, and they tremble. They they, they believe, but they're not followers of Christ. They're followers of Satan. Full-blown apostasy is sinning with your eyes wide open. You see, apostates on one level know the truth and yet abandon it. Full-blown apostasy sins against full-blown light for which there is no remedy. People are accountable for the light given. And to whom much is given... Much is required. 
You see, Balaam was a false prophet in the Old Testament. He wanted to curse Israel, tried his best to curse Israel, but God wouldn't allow it. God kept overruling him, and he knew it. The sovereignty of God over the false prophet is shown in the fact that some wonderful prophecies came through Balaam in spite of himself. His own confession was that he was a man who hears the words of God, has knowledge of the Most High, sees the vision of the Almighty, and, quote, falls down with eyes wide open. Numbers 24, verse 4 and 16. He knew all this truth about God and falls down on his face with his eyes wide open. Yet Balaam is clearly depicted as a false prophet who, while having knowledge of the truth, never truly accepted it, never yielded to the truth of it. Judah served in the role of apostle. He had firsthand knowledge of the truth, seen the light up close and personal, like few persons have ever known. And yet Jesus said of the betrayer that it would have been better for him if he had never been born. He flagrantly sinned against the truth with his eyes wide open. In Matthew 12, the religious leaders ascribed to Satan the miracles that Jesus did in the power of the Holy Spirit. This sin against the light was so egregious that Jesus said the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Hebrews 6 describes those who have had intimate contact with God and the things of God and yet apostatize. That is, depart from it, walk away from it. The writer says that for those who sin against this level of light, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. They have crossed the point of no return. In like manner, Hebrews 10 says of willful rejection of the knowledge of the truth, that this puts one in the position of rejecting not only the only God-provided sacrifice for sins and facing, quote, a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Sinning against the light of God's truth in such a flagrant manner amounts to full-blown apostasy against full-blown light. Peter says, for those uh, who have known, they have known the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that to then reject it is a really terrible thing. Second Peter 2.21, it would have been better for them not to have known. They, they knew. The, the promise not to do you know, These people know. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. What we have represented in these religious leaders is full-blown apostasy that is completely closed to God's truth no matter how strong or clear the evidence may be. They knew full well the truth of the empty tomb. And by implication, the resurrection. But yet refused to accept it. At the foot of the cross, they said this. As Jesus was being crucified, likewise the chief priests, this is who we're talking about, the chief priests, also mocking with the scribes and elders, said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. How about if he rises from the dead on the third day as he predicted he would and which they were all fully aware? Will you believe in him then? How about if he does one better than coming down from the cross? 
How about if he comes out of the grave on the third day, as predicted? This proves they were absolute, total, hypocritical liars. It didn't matter how much evidence there was. They were steeled in their rebel unbelief. You know what? There's never enough evidence for hardened unbelief. That's what this teaches us. You know, Jesus taught us this in Luke 16. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. This is the, the, the uh, rich man who's in Hades, and he's thinking about his lost uh, brothers who are back here on earth. And he says, If someone goes from the dead, they'll repent. And notice what Abraham said as Jesus is rehearsing this story. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. The evidence is sufficient. The testimony of the word is sufficient. If people won't believe the powerful testimony of the Holy Spirit working through the word, they won't be convinced even by a resurrection from the dead. These religious leaders prove this. They did not lack evidence. They just did not want to accept it. John MacArthur says, The heart that is hardened to God will not be persuaded by any miracle or by any amount of evidence, no matter how compelling. You know, we think sometimes in our, in our puny human thinking, if we just present enough evidence, surely it will convince them. No, 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 no. I, apart from the Holy Spirit working, uh, they'll never come there. There's none that seeks after God. They're totally closed. Apart from God working in amazing, miraculous ways, it won't happen. That's why, we're, that's why we pray, right? We pray to God to work in hearts. We are dependent upon him to do this. Verse 12. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum, not, not, a, not a few dollars, a large sum of money to the soldiers. This was a crisis, you understand. So immediately they convened the entire Supreme Court, known as the Sanhedrin, to deal with the situation. They quickly came up with a conspiracy scheme involving bribe money by which they might deceive the public. They wanted to frame the narrative and to ensure that their propaganda got out, they bribed these first-hand witnesses, namely these guards with a large sum of money. Now they say that every man has his price. <clears throat> well, to ensure that these uh, soldiers told the lie uh, that they had come up with, uh, they required a, it required a large sum of money. Now, it would take a large sum of money because Roman soldiers would never easily betray themselves by saying that they were negligent in keeping their post. I mean, to do that would be to admit the unthinkable, unthinkable negligence, which could well result in the death penalty. Only a very large sum of money. Every man has his price. <laughs> they kind of prove that here, too. Uh, Praise the Lord, I think there's exceptions. But uh, these guys were not the exception. Only a very large sum of money could sway these Roman soldiers to betray their honor in this way. I mean, think about what they're being asked to do. Everything that you stand for as a Roman soldier, you're flying in the face and saying, yeah, we were guarding, but in the night they came and we were so sound asleep, they stole the body. I mean, that's unthinkable that that would be on a Roman soldier. But given enough money... And that's, I will know what this large sum amounted to, but it must have been a very, very, very large sum of money. 
How much money, we're not told, but it was enough to buy them off. The word money literally means silver. It's the same word used in Matthew 26, 15 in reference to the betrayal money given to Judas. Now, Judas uh, was bought off rather inexpensively. really didn't take much to pay off Judas. In fact, uh, they paid him 30 pieces of silver, which was the price of a slave. Now, this just proves how corrupt these religious leaders really were. They were not interested in the truth. Rather, it was all about their power, their influence, their position. And no price was too high to protect their selfish interests. Whatever it costs, we're willing to pay it. Now, for these religious leaders to admit the truth of the empty tomb as clear evidence of the resurrection, exactly as Christ had prophesied, would have been to acknowledge the claims of Christ as true and to admit their grievous guilt as having committed the greatest crime in the annals of history. To admit their guilt and align with the truth of Christ would have been repentance, which is a, repentance is a change of mind that acknowledges your sin and aligns with God's truth. But there was no way they were going to do that. Instead, they concocted a huge lie to try and explain away the empty tomb. Here's, the ma- here's a major point, uh, one of the major points in the message this morning. And that is that no one, not even Christ's very worst enemies, ever denied that the tomb was empty. That's, that's a really important point. I mean, it's empty. (laughs) No debate. No argument. It's empty. I mean, his worst enemies didn't say, oh, it's not true. He's there. there. Go go see it. Go see it. No, no. They never denied it. No one denied the fact of the empty tomb. In fact, in all my reading, and there's lots of theories out here, and I'll touch on a couple of them as we go along, but in all my reading, from what I see... In all these theories put forward, to my knowledge, no one ever denies the empty tomb, except for perhaps this theory that the women went to the wrong tomb. But in terms of the tomb they put Christ in, nobody denies it. The only question is how to explain it. This is the great issue. The empty tomb demands an explanation. And that's true to this day. On the one side, you have Bible prophecy, as in Psalm 1610, written 1,000 years before the time of Christ, saying that the Holy One would not see corruption. Can't stay in the grave, because if you do, you're going to see corruption. And you have the person of Christ himself plainly prophesying that he would rise on the third day. An empty tomb is totally consistent with this. Established prophecy, the testimony of Christ, and historical facts. On the other side, you have this absurd claim that the religious leaders hastily concocted and then bribed the soldiers to say. And here's what it was, verse 13, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. Here's the mega money. Now we just, all we're asking, you want this money? Now go and tell this lie. Now, this lie was so ridiculous as to not even be a good lie. You know there are good lies and there are bad lies, right? Now, they're all bad. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) 
But in terms of the quality of a lie, you know, Satan is a really good liar. I mean, he's a master deceiver. I mean, what I mean by a good lie here is one, one that seems to maybe on the face of it have some credibility. This had no credence whatsoever. But this is what happens when you have nothing. They had nothing. Uh, you come up with sheer foolishness and then you try to sell it. They had to come up with some explanation. I mean, the tomb is empty. What's the explanation? They had to come up with something. And this is the best these great thinkers could come up with. And frankly, no one has ever come up with anything better since, which means they've had nothing. Now, let's start with the disciples. Now, realize that trying to rob a grave itself could incur the death penalty, especially when you are defying Rome in breaking a Roman seal and defying a Roman guard, that would mean certain death. Now, did the disciples ever show such courage? I mean, this would take a lot of guts. I mean, in the middle of Peter to, to John, let's go in the middle of the night. Are you kidding? When they came to arrest Jesus, I mean, after an initial flurry by Peter, which went nowhere, uh, they, the disciples all forsook Jesus. They fled into the darkness of the night. Peter, who spoke so boldly, then in cowardly fashion, denied Jesus three times. I don't know him. I don't know him. I swear I don't know him. Now, a few hours later, he's going to defy the Roman guard and go into the garden and, and, and they're going to get the stone rolled away. Are you kidding me? None of the disciples, other than John, were even at the cross. I mean, they were keeping their distance. None of them were at his burial. And after the crucifixion, we find them hiding behind bolted doors for fear of the Jews, as it says in John 20, verse 19. I submit to you, this cowardly band was in no way up to even thinking about trying to overcome a Roman guard and rob the tomb. It wasn't on their radar. Now, when Jesus was dead, they thought it was over. When Jesus on resurrection day talked to the two disciples on the Emmaus road, they spoke of the crucifixion and the death of Jesus and said, we were hoping, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. This was our hope. And they're all dejected. They were hoping, but now that hope is gone. He was crucified. We all know it. It's crazy to even think the disciples were plotting and planning how to take the body of Christ out of the grave. And to what end? I mean, were they going to stage a resurrection? It wasn't even on their radar. And the line about the disciples doing this in the middle of the night while the soldiers slept is equally preposterous. I mean, think about this for, for just a moment. I mean, if you're so sound asleep as to allow this to happen, how could you possibly know it was the disciples who did it? Imagine one of the disciples, or one of the soldiers, rather. Imagine one of the soldiers in a court of law swearing to tell the truth before a jury. Sir, can you describe to us what happened while you were sound asleep? Of course not. I was sound asleep. 
They had no knowledge of what happened. I mean, if, if we're to believe the story, they were so sound asleep, uh, they had no idea. The story itself is self-contradicting on its face. In short order, the whole thing falls apart. Very possibly, there were 12 to 16 soldiers involved here. Are we to believe that all the soldiers were sound asleep? All of them at the same time? Are we to believe that all of these soldiers would be so negligent and cavalier as to put their lives on the line in this way? Are we to believe that all of these soldiers were so sound asleep that they would not be aroused by the noise that would be involved in moving this huge stone away from the entryway of the tomb? I mean, in order to believe this, you have to believe that they were all on heavy doses of sleep aid. I mean, seriously, this is crazy. How is it they managed to get the body out of the grave without the grave clothes? I mean, in the grave clothes, full, grave clothes, fully intact, even the, even the face wrapped, neatly folded. Uh, how did they do that? Uh, they must have worked amazingly fast and amazingly quiet. I mean, how do you do this with, with 70 pounds of uh, all of the spices and all of this gooey stuff around the body? How do you do that? How do you even get a body out, period, like that? And by the way, if they knew it was the disciples, then why were they not promptly arrested for robbing the tomb? And if they knew the body was taken, why did they not make diligent search until it was found? I mean, all they had to do to stamp out the message of the resurrection was to produce the dead body. They didn't even try to find the dead body. Knowing full well it was gone from the tomb with the grave clothes fully intact remaining behind. This concocted story is beyond ridiculous. And with a little bit of thinking and investigation is shown to present a whole bundle of absurdities. Now, various theories have been put forth to try and provide an explanation for the empty tomb. I mean, you've got to give these. Uh, no, we don't. We don't have to give them any credit whatsoever. But they have tried. One theory is, as I say, the women went to the wrong tomb. But what about the disciples who also went to the same tomb and saw the grave clothes? How about that? And then there is the swoon theory. I mean, it really takes a lot, a lot to believe this kind of stuff. I mean, you've got to have tremendous faith in your unbelief. Uh, this swoon theory says that Christ was not fully dead. And uh, when they put him in the grave, that somehow he revived, you know, in that damp uh, atmosphere, it was enough to revive him and bring him to. And somehow he managed to roll the stone back and escape. David Gazik says, A plain, simple understanding of these evidences of the resurrection of Jesus answers all of these theories and shows they take far more faith to believe than the Bible account does. Yeah, how true that is. You see, unbelief is more willing to accept far-out theories with no factual basis than it is to accept the straightforward, clear evidence of the truth. Take, for example, atheistic evolution. It has no basis in logic or fact, and yet multitudes of people believe in it, and in fact, they call it they kind of try to write the holy word in their vocabulary, science over it, right? I like this meme, you know, right? 
To be an atheist, I would have to believe nothing produced everything, non-life produced life, randomness produced precision, chaos produced order. I simply do not have that much faith. Amen. The evidence for the resurrection of Christ is compelling, starting with the historical reality of the empty tomb. With all the theories and attempts to explain it away, there is no better explanation than it was the fulfillment of Christ's own prophecy that he would rise from the dead on the third day. Verse 14, And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. Now, when it comes to lying and hiding the truth, you see, one lie begets another. And there's no end of it. Uh, Truth is self-verifying. A lie has to be supported by countless other lies. I mean, that's the way it works. Now, these religious leaders, they were all hypocrites, as Christ called them. Matthew 23, hypocrites, hypocrites, hypocrites. Uh, They were players. And they had manipulated Pilate into ordaining the crucifixion when he didn't want to do it. He knew this wasn't legit. And they now were prepared to influence him in regard to this conspiracy as well. They were pulling out all the stops to circulate the lie that the body had been stolen by the disciples as their explanation for the missing body. And if the governor, that is Pilate, got word that the soldiers had let this dead man get away, they would appease him. Now, how they would do this, we are not told. Maybe they would buy him off too. Maybe they would threaten him in some way. The assurance is that they would protect these soldiers. If only they did, as they were told, and propagated the lie of the stolen body. Verse 15, so they took the money and they did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Understand, Matthew was writing about 20 to 30 years after the fact. And the lie was still being circulated that the body of Christ had been stolen by his disciples. Now, it's interesting that after his resurrection, uh, Jesus appeared only to believers. The unbelieving world only saw the evidence, such as in the empty tomb. They only saw the evidence of the resurrection and not the resurrected Christ himself. Isn't that interesting? I mean, you say, well, Christ appeared in the middle of Jerusalem in front of all these religious. They say, hey, guys. No, didn't do that. Didn't do that. It is like God presents enough evidence for people to believe, but not so much that they are forced to believe. And people in their fallenness are very prone to believe a lie. Joseph Goebbels was Hitler's propaganda chief, and he is credited with saying, if you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. You know, I think he was on to something there. You know, that's kind of how the devil works. It doesn't matter how big the lie is. If you just keep reinforcing it, eventually there's going to be certain people who do believe it. This is the devil's thing. Jesus said of him, when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. We read in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Wow. Deceives the whole world. The devil is a liar and a deceiver, and he is good at it. This is what life is about. It's a battle for the mind. It's a truth war. The devil is out to deceive, and God presents the truth. 
There's an old saying that says a lie gets halfway around the world before a truth gets its boots on. And it is true that lies have speed. But truth has endurance. Lies ultimately do have an expiration date. They all will be brought to light in eternity before God. R.T. France, uh, the Bible commentator, wrote, Justin Martyr says that such stories were still being actively disseminated in the middle of the second century. The fact of such propaganda in itself indicates that it could not be denied that the tomb was empty. What was questioned was how it came to be empty. Well, in a turnabout sort of way, the lie of these religious leaders turns out to be a great apologetic for the truth of the gospel. John MacArthur says, The truth of the resurrection is so absolute that even a lie against it helps prove it. Whether the testimony is from Jesus' friends or his enemies, the same conclusion is inevitable. No other historical event is so thoroughly attested by sound evidence as is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the concerns of the religious leaders really proved to be valid. I mean, if the truth of the resurrection got out, the world would be radically affected. The trajectory of history would be affected. And it was. Even reaching to the very core of the priesthood in all places of Jerusalem. Notice what we find in the history book of Acts 6, 7. Then the word of God spread. Oh, it's spreading. We're trying to stamp it out. It's spreading. Word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many. Who? Of the priests. Are you kidding? The priests. A great many, great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. You understand the evidence was so strong that even many of the priests in Jerusalem came to believe. You know why they were so compelled to believe? I mean, even a secretary in Jerusalem on a 15-minute walk could go to the tomb and see that it was empty. It was undeniable. They were, these priests, many of these priests were, oh, hey, our, our, our chief priests are saying this. And, and the, so we don't buy it. It, do, it doesn't add up. They weren't buying it. The fact of the empty tomb is compelling evidence of the truth of the resurrection. It's not all the evidence, but it's an important part of it. Now consider this. When the disciples began to preach the truth of the resurrected Christ, they did not begin in some far-off, obscure place. Always kind of interesting these these charismatic miracles that happen, you know. Like <laughs> I had one of them tell me one time that uh, you know uh, he had seen a guy healed of his blindness. But these things always happen somewhere else, far off. People are raised from the dead somewhere far off. It rarely happens down at your local mortuary. I don't know why that is. I don't know why it has to happen somewhere far away. But I want you to note here: this did not happen in some far off, obscure place. No, rather, they started to preach right in the heart of Jerusalem. On the day of Pentecost, you know that coward Peter, I don't know him, I don't know him, stood up and said, I know him. He's alive. He's risen from the dead. And he preached and 3,000 people got saved. Where? In the heart of Jerusalem. 
They could not possibly have done this had the tomb still been occupied. Everyone knew it was empty, and their preaching provided the reason. It's very hard to fight against God's truth. As Jesus told Saul, turned Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. It really is. Painful. The truth is stubborn. It just won't go away. Fifty days after the resurrection of Christ, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit empowering his people to be his witnesses. As I say, Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Three people got saved. So much for doing away with Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 3, you know, Peter, in the name of Jesus, healed a man who was lame from birth. And what did he do? He went walking and leaping and praising God. And the people were filled with wonder and amazement. And as Peter addressed the crowd, guess what happened? 5,000 more got saved. The religious leaders promptly arrested Peter and John, being greatly disturbed that they preached, quote, in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. This was turning out to be an insurmountable problem that would just not go away. I mean, these Jewish religious leaders had long been trying to get rid of Jesus. They accused him of doing miracles by the power of Satan. They accused him of being a friend of sinners. You know, that's a terrible thing to do. And, uh, sarcasm, they accused him of being a lawbreaker, violating the Sabbath, the Holy Sabbath. They accused him of blasphemy for claiming to be God's son. They perverted justice and all manner of law to have Jesus arrested. And then put him forth on trumped-up charges. And Pilate knew it, but they blackmailed him to get the verdict of the crucifixion. And then they used the full force of the, of the Roman government to do everything possible to keep Jesus in the grave. And then they corruptly bribed the soldiers to lie. And yet, and yet, in spite of all of that, just a few weeks after the resurrection, thousands of people in Jerusalem were coming to believe in the risen Christ. It's hard to keep a good man down. It's impossible to keep the God man down. Matthew 28, 11 through 15 presents the story of two lines that continues to this day. One line presents the religious leaders and their bribed accomplices presenting a lie to try and suppress the truth. The other line presents the witness of devoted followers. The spread of the lie is countered by the spread of truth, which will be further dealt with in the Great Commission, which rounds out the book. This is what the whole of history is about. It's a battle between the spread of Satan's lie through his people and the spread of God's truth through his people. This is what's going on. This is, this is the whole issue. Great issue in life. And it comes down to this. You know, you see all these people here. Uh, he's not here uh, among the dead in their graves. All these religious leaders. He's risen. That's the difference. I mean, you got one empty tomb here. Huge difference between Christianity and all the other. You know, note these other um, major religious leaders. Muhammad, yep, still dead. Confucius, still dead. Buddha, still dead. This, wait, this one's empty. Uh, just another prophet, question mark? Oh, no. No, no, no. He's the God-man. 
They say there's uh, 4,200 world religions, but there's only one empty tomb. Uh, There's only one man who conquered sin, death, and hell forever. There's only one way to heaven. His name is Jesus Christ. I mean, this this is some pretty pretty heavy credentials. Uh, The tomb is empty. You know, there's, uh, they say there's uh, 4,200 religions in the world. I haven't, like I say, studied this. But uh, there's really what is considered five major ones. Uh, what's, what's the major religion in the world? I'm talking just in terms of just huge under the umbrella of Christianity in general, as far as the huge uh, dome of Christianity. I'm not, and most of Christianity is, is uh, also false. You've got the huge uh, baptismal regeneration We've got huge sacramental religion. You've got all kinds of things under the, under the heading of Christianity. But Christianity is, is, the, is the largest religion in the world, if you're talking religion. Islam is second. Hinduism is third. Buddhism is fourth. And Judaism is considered the, the fifth major player in terms of world religions, those five. But among those, only Christianity presents a risen Savior. Years ago, a man by the name of G.R. Hardy wrote a book about life and destiny, which was titled Countdown, A Time to Choose. And in the book, he noted there are essentially two questions that need to be answered with regard to destiny. Number one, has anyone ever defeated death? That's a good question. Number two, if so, did he make a way for us to do it also? Yeah, that's good. Okay, has anyone ever escaped death? Okay, let's start there. And secondly, has he made a way for me to escape death? His answer was yes. Yes to both. Jesus has defeated death, and yes, in conquering death, he has made a way for us. And it's through faith in him. When the Sanhedrin arrested Peter and John and demanded an explanation... For the healing of the man born blind, Peter, Peter again, turned the tables, went on the offensive. And he said, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, <laughs> he puts it right in their face, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, uh, fulfilled prophecy, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Amen to that. Matthew builds to the climax of Matthew 27 and 28. And in this climax, we have the full gospel. The word gospel means good news. It is the story of who Jesus is and what he has done to provide salvation. You see, in Matthew 27, we have... At the moment of Christ's death, the veil in front of the Holy of Holies being torn from top to bottom, showing us we now have access to God on the basis of Christ's finished work on the cross. Jesus paid it all. This is the story of grace, God's unmerited favor. This is the truth of Christ being our Savior by way of his cross work. But that's not the full story. The gospel is that Christ died for our sins. But that's not the full story. He was buried. That's not the full story. The full story is that he rose again. The rest of the story is found in Matthew 28, where Christ is raised from the dead as Lord 
over all. The, Christ, uh, the cross presents Christ as Savior. The resurrection presents him as living Lord. And this, my friends, is a package. As Savior, he died for all of our sins. As Lord over all, he rose again. This is the full gospel to believe. The only question remains is, do you believe it? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's stand and have our closing song.